Good morning. Great to see everyone here this morning. Always nice to be here and just to be able to turn our thoughts to the Lord, sing his praises. And thank you, Hannah, Trevor, Angie, Ryan, for leading us in that. It's great to see some people visiting this family weekend. It's wonderful to see faces that I haven't seen for a long time. And, and now you come back with your families. Wow. This morning, we're going to be looking at Jesus, the Holy One of God. We're going to focus on, on this. And what's interesting, Jesus' holiness shapes all his attributes. All of Jesus' attributes are linked to his holiness. And holiness is central to their gospel message. We can probably spend a month of Sundays looking at his holiness. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have that much time. So this morning, uh, my intent is to kind of look at different aspects. Uh, we're probably going to be flying at about 5,000 feet. And uh, my hope is that there will be things that you'll pick up on and that you'll want to look into a bit more on your own later on. Let's just open with a word of prayer, shall we? Our Father in heaven, it's just, it's just so amazing that you love us so much that you sent your Son to earth the one who was in heaven, as we sung, came down to earth, brought heaven down to us, that we can just be forgiven of our sins, have a relationship with you. Father, we thank you for your son, for his life, for his sacrifice. We praise you that he rose from the dead. We thank you for the example he's left us. And Father, we thank you for your spirit. As we open your word this morning, we just pray, Father, for your guidance, that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you would have us learn. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you think when you hear the word holy? I'm going to suggest to you that like the fear of uh, people from outside the church or inside the church. And I think to some extent, there's an age factor in it. For thinking, you know, what kind of things might you hear from people outside the church? Well, holy cow, holy roller, holy grail. People talk about a holy book, not necessarily the Bible. Holy smoke. And on a bit of a negative negative connotation, some people might think holier than thou, thinking of people in the church. Different word, but... When people think of holy, they might think of sanctimonious. People inside the church might have some different thoughts of what holy is. Bible, communion, spirit or ghost. The holy of holies, holy Lord. Holy, holy, holy. So the word holy is found many times in the Bible. And well, there's a few different words translated holy that were in the, the Hebrew and the Greek. Uh, for the purposes of this morning, I'm just going to use them all as one. They're fairly similar. When I was looking at this, I thought, hmm, what exactly is the definition of holy? And so I looked at a few different sources, and here's a partial definition from Merriam-Webster's dictionary. Holy, a couple of parts to it, 
is exalted or worthy of complete devotion as one perfect in goodness and righteousness. It also means divine. When you look through different, different sources, you find different aspects of holiness. So I'm going to take some license and combine some of them. It talks about being perfect in a pure or moral sense. It could be an adjective for something that's set apart or consecrated for sacred purposes, such as the Holy Sabbath, the Holy Temple, the priesthood. It could mean perfectly good, like the holy law of God. And it could be a sacred witness, for example, the Holy Spirit. So holiness, though, if you try and sum it all together, talks about the nature which delights in purity. And that purity is so pure that it repels evil. Holiness and evil just don't go together. Scroll puts it this way. He says there's two parts to holiness. The first part is transcendent majesty. In other words, it transcends. It's above and beyond everything we see. It's up at the universal level and higher. And majesty, as we sung. Think of the one who is the king of kings, the lord of lords. So we talk about the majesty of Jesus up high. And the second part to that is moral purity. Let's look at a few references to holiness from the older, as Jim referred to the other day, as the First Testament. From Exodus 3, and I'm going to read a a little more than what you see on the screen. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that through the bush, though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go and see the strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. If you read through the book of Exodus, you'll see the word holy used frequently and talks about describing the requirements for the priests their clothing, how they were to prepare the altar, the oil, keeping the Sabbath, and the expectations for his people. People could not approach a perfectly moral, a perfectly holy God any other way than the way he prescribed. You could, but there were real serious consequences. For example, in Leviticus, we read of the story of Nadab and Abihu, Aaron, two of Aaron's sons, they decided that they're going to approach God their own way. So they put fire in their censers. They put incense in their censers. And they went to go see God. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. The book of Leviticus gave some very clear instructions regarding the sacrifices and offerings that were to be made. 
Apparently, Leviticus is one of the first books that the Jewish people teach their children, in part because it teaches the way to the Holy One in the first part, chapters 1 to 16, and it talks about the way to holiness from chapters around 17 to 27. The latter ones are sometimes referred to as the holiness code. Now, the animals that were offered up for sacrifice, they had to be spotless. They had to be without blemish. We see this in Leviticus on the screen 1 and 3. If the animal is to be a burnt offering from the herd, he is to offer a male without defect. He must present it at the entrance of the tent of meeting so it will be acceptable to the Lord. Likewise, if it was a burnt offering from the flock, it had to be, whether from the sheep or the goats, it had to be a male without defect. This was also applied to animals that were offered for the sin offerings or for fellowship offerings. They had to be perfect. The offerings that, when you look back at the different offerings in the Old Testament, the offerings were there to address things like sin. For example, the sin offering, the guilt offering. They addressed commitment to God. There were burnt offerings and grain offerings that were required in this category. And there was communion between God and the people. There were fellowship offerings, and those included things like vow offerings, thanksgiving offerings, free will offerings. And the purposes of the offerings was not just about dealing with sin. Yes, that was there and that was integral to them. But it was also about worship. There was thanksgiving. There was recognition for God's provision through the offerings. And there's also an element of surrender and devotion to God. So there's a relationship aspect to these offerings in addition to just atonement for sin. God made it clear to Aaron and to his, that when he was going in, and you may remember Aaron and his sons were the priests, so they would go in and they would go into the temple on behalf of the people. And he made it clear to them they were not to drink wine or fermented drink when they entered the tent of meeting. They were to distinguish between the holy and the common, the clean and the unclean. In addition to establishing rules for the people so that they could follow all these laws, and they would build, if the law said this, they would kind of build a, like a fence around it to make sure that you didn't stumble and transgress the law. The people separate themselves from the non-Jewish people or the Gentiles to the extent possible as well. So they, they took the separation and that was really important to them. They took that seriously. They kept themselves separate from things and from people that they did not see as clean or unclean or as defiled. One more reference comes from Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. That was Isaiah's reaction to what he saw.
go back to the definition of holiness, God's transcending majesty and moral purity. Moses could not approach further because the ground was holy. The people had to approach God in a very specific fashion. We have the Lord seated on a throne and the seraphs calling out, Holy, Holy, Holy. God's also referred to as a a consuming fire. You see that in Deuteronomy 4. In the New Testament, we see a few references to Jesus and his holiness or his transcendent majesty, his purity. In John 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The account of Jesus, or sorry, the account of how Jesus was born, his incarnation, from Matthew 1.18. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be a child through the Holy Spirit. The perfect, holy God gave up his rightful place in heaven and came down to earth in the form of a human being. Isn't that amazing? John the Baptist also testified to Jesus' deity, to his majesty. Then John gave this testimony, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and rain on him. I would not have known him, except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and rain, it is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testify that this... Jesus is the Son of God. God the Father also confirmed who Jesus was when he was transfigured on the mountain. In Matthew 17, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But while he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my Son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus displayed his deity, his control over the physical aspects of the earth, the forces of nature, and the spirits of the world. Let's take a quick look at some of those, shall we? In Luke 5, Jesus teaches the people from Peter's boat and gives them a fishing story they'll never forget. Even Rod can't match this one. When he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to the partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He and his companions were astonished at the catch of fish. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. In Mark 4, we read about Jesus calming the sea. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and was completely calm. 
And he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Have you so little faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. In Mark 1, Jesus was in the synagogue in Capernaum on the Sabbath. Just then, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? We know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus commands the spirit, takes charge of the spirit, and he heals the man who was blind and mute. Jesus and the people were all amazed and they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. We see a similar reaction in Mark 5 when he casts out the demons collectively known as legion and tells them to go into the pigs. So how did the people react to Jesus? What were the reactions to Jesus? Not really the people, but the first one, the demons. How did they react? With fear, with trembling. How did Peter react when Jesus had him catch all the fish? He was fearful. He was frightened. He was afraid. The disciples were afraid when he calmed the storm. I think this is the natural reaction people have when they're dealing with one who is the transcendent being, who is the God above everything. Jesus broke the mold and he came down to earth as a human being, as one of us. The demons were probably the first ones to recognize Jesus and they were terrified. They knew that they were in trouble. The people were afraid. Peter was aware of his own, acutely aware of his own sinfulness when he realized who Jesus was, the one who commands the fish of the sea and everything else. And I think this is where we would be too, wouldn't we? Jesus knows all of our thoughts. If we were to come before Jesus right now in the fullness of his glory and his majesty, and we're looking at him, we're looking at the one so pure that he can't even be in the presence can't stand evil and we look at ourselves and then we look at him what would you think? I think we'd be down on our knees just cowering saying Lord have mercy on us and more so if you're in that position and your future in heaven or in hell is going to be judged by your state compared to his holiness Some were amazed at what he did. The people who saw Jesus drive out the demon were amazed. Again, they recognized that he taught as one with authority. It wasn't the same teaching that they were hearing from others because he had authority and they recognized it. If you read about some of his other miracles, the reaction is amazed, astonished. Doing things like controlling the forces of nature, calming the wind and the waves, Those weren't things that an ordinary human did. Those are things reserved for God. 
So who is this man? This man, Jesus. The man that we are seeing. You better stick around and find out who he is. And many did put their faith and their belief in Jesus. No surprise, some reacted negatively. The Pharisees had the audacity when Jesus cured somebody, when Jesus took uh, the devil away from somebody who was blind and mute and healed them, they said, the people, sorry, the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But the Pharisees heard this and said, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out other demons. And Jesus knew their thoughts. So instead of attributing glory and majesty to him when he did something amazing, they turned around and they said, nah, uh, that's a sham. He's doing it by the power of the devil. Thankfully, we no longer have to follow the law and the system of sacrifices that we looked at earlier, that are talked about in Leviticus. Jesus came himself, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. The Bible tells us of the new covenant, or the new contract, that God puts before us. Jesus was the only person to live on this planet and never sin, despite some serious testing. The law required perfect sacrifices, no defects, no blemishes. And we know that Jesus himself, though, fit that bill. He was holy. We might say he was holy, holy, as in entirely holy. Maybe we'll say he was holy, holy, holy. He was the one who personified moral excellence. The only one qualified to be the perfect sacrifice to pay the price for our sin, for our shortcoming. Jesus himself said he was without sin. And in John 8:46, he challenges the Pharisees and says, Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Unfortunately for them, their position, their power, the praise of men was more important to them than following God. In 1 Peter 2, we're reminded that he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. It says, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges righteous, sorry, who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on, in his body on the tree so that we may die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. As we sang, it's not our righteousness. Our righteousness is in him. Galatians 3 and 33. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by being a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. In his Sermon on the Mount, and you can find this in Matthew chapters 5 to 7, Jesus puts a new twist on the interpretation of the rules the Pharisees followed so closely. He told them about the spirit of the law and how it was totally different from the letter of the law that they were following. For example, he challenged their unwillingness to support their parents when they said, well, it's Sorry, what I have is given over to God. It's Corban, so I can't help you. And he corrects them on that. He told them that just their attitude enough was enough to constitute adultery or murder. 
He saw through their religious behavior and he knew their hearts weren't really set on following God. Again, the Israelites didn't associate with the Gentiles when possible. They avoided people and things that they saw as unclean or defiled. Jesus, though, wasn't worried with contact at anything, with anything or anyone. He didn't worry if that would make him unclean. He talked to people. He associated with sinners. He even went further and had meals with them. That was a real no-no in those days. One of the gospel writers, Matthew, was even a tax collector. He was even worse than just those normal ones that were bad. Instead of making the other people making Jesus unclean, Jesus' contact with others changed their lives and gave them the opportunity to devote their lives and wholly follow God. In a similar vein, Jesus didn't follow things like rules around ritual washing. He healed people on the Sabbath. And he had some pretty harsh words for the Pharisees. The ones who are supposed to be the closest to God in that society, the very ones who are supposed to be pointing people toward God, they were the ones who were actually missing the boat. So what is our reaction when we come before the transcendent, majestic, perfectly holy God? Is it rejection? Is it amazement and astonishment? Or is it fear? We're all offered the opportunity to draw near to him through the sacrificial death that Jesus offered, that he endured for each of us. And just as the Old Testament sacrifices were linked to worship, to commitment, that had that relationship aspect, that's what this is all about. Jesus offers us the chance to have a personal relationship with the God who created the heavens and earth, the one who controls everything and is the perfect and holy judge. We all need Jesus, the Holy One, to be our Redeemer. Sproul notes that His holiness is the only hope for our sinlessness. If there is anyone here who has never accepted the gift of grace that God offers you, if you haven't put your faith and your trust in Jesus, I would encourage you to do so today. None of us can do it on our own strength. That was what following the law was all about. We can only do it by faith, faith in the one who came and died for us. It's more than just putting our faith in him because he wants us to do things. We're called to imitate Jesus. In First Peter, we see the same command that you would see in Leviticus. And again, reading a bit more than what you've seen on the screen. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. There are many passages in the Bible that tell us about how to live a life that pleases God. As I noted earlier, it's not about following the law per se. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. However, there are some things we should avoid. Some would say that the Christian life can be summarized by saying, if it's fun, you have to stay away from it. 
I would suggest that the Christian life is great in part because we avoid certain behaviors that just lead to hardship and destruction and pain. Holiness is linked to sanctification or cleansing. And again, we attain our righteousness through God and it can only be done through faith in Him. But being holy is more than living just a quote-unquote moral life. Christians aren't perfect, but thankfully we're forgiven. We all stumble at times and need to ask for forgiveness. Even if we were to keep ourselves from sinning, the example Jesus sets goes beyond looking after ourselves. And while I'm thinking, you know, there may be people in the neighborhood who live great holy or what we would say moral lives, probably not holy lives, but moral lives. They don't go do all these bad things. They help around. But you know what? The sad part is, and the sad truth is, that even good neighbors can go to hell. You have to have Jesus. It's not just about doing certain things. And Jesus is more than holy. He's compassionate. He's merciful. He's loving. And he's a whole bunch of great things that you can think of. He came to do the will of his Father. Had he not, we, or at least most of us here, would still be on the outside looking in. We've been afforded the opportunity to experience the saving grace that he offers. And it's not our place to say that others aren't worthy of that same saving grace, of that same opportunity. That's what the Pharisees did. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its sand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. Unfortunately, if you're like me, there have probably been times when we've been more like salt and vinegar than salt and light. Jesus met people where they are in life. He spent time with them and he took an interest in them. He pointed out what they needed to do from a spiritual perspective. It wasn't just being with them, but he pointed them in the right direction as well. And that's the task before us. The grain offerings from the Old Testament in Leviticus were to be seasoned with salt. As a preservative, the use of salt may have symbolized permanence. So the use of salt in the grain offering was symbolic in that the covenant was everlasting. Parties that shared salt had mutual obligations. And so when we had the covenant, there were blessings if you kept it and curses if you didn't. The only way that we can maintain saltiness in our lives is to stick close to Jesus to follow his leading. Jesus was well versed in the scriptures. He spent time in prayer with his heavenly father and he focused his activities on things that he knew were in line with his father's will. That's perfect holiness and that's the example that he sets for us. Thankfully, we have his Holy Spirit to guide us. Let's close in prayer, shall we?
Our Heavenly Father, again, we just marvel at your goodness, at your grace, at your love. It's so amazing that ones like us can come before a perfectly holy, for that amazing God, that God who transcends everything, is above everything, and yet loves ones like us. Father, I do pray that nobody would leave here without Jesus this morning. And I pray that you would help the rest of us just to be salt and light, to go out and act in a way that just shows people your love and that we'd also just point them to you through whatever actions and deeds we need to. Just pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Dear God, we come before you and we uh, are grateful for this time that we spent together. And we realize, Lord, that you are holy, that you are set apart, that you are other, um, and you love us nonetheless. So we may, may we depart this place, Lord, with uh, that realization, and may we live in that light this week. We pray all these things in your name, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.